Welcome to the Model Railroad Hobbyist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. Our guest tonight is Mike Rose, the owner of Mike Rose Hobbies, and that website for that is www.mrhobby.com. Uh, Mike's an Easterner. He lives in Dartmouth, uh, Massachusetts. Mike has been involved in model railroading since forever, and he's had uh, over 70 articles published in all the major modeling magazines. He is a respected go-to guy on weathering. He has a DVD on weathering with oils available from his website. He's also got a, a CD-ROM to complement the article in Model Railroad Hobbyist this month on kit bashing a U18B. Tell me, Mike, just when and how did you get in the, in the hobby? Define forever. Well, you know, I guess I got my start in trains, uh, rail fanning with my dad. We, uh, we had uh, a daily New Haven freight that would leave right out of New Bedford, Mass. And uh, this was, I guess, there in the mid-60s, mid to late 60s. It was a great time to be trackside. There were always uh, Alcos and Jeep 9s and, and uh, in Penn Central days, U25Bs and uh, sometimes an RS-11. And uh, my dad and I would often watch the evening freight go out. And uh, he also had a uh, an O-scale layout in the basement. It was uh, Supero, the one with that little thin brass center uh, strip yes. down the middle instead of having just the, uh, the the three big rails. And it looked pretty good. And uh, it was a transformer like the size of me. And, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I, I still remember with fondness those old plasticville buildings and the the lehigh valley hoppers that he had and big old b&m um, jeep 18 and the matched aba set of uh, santa fe f units sure wish i had all that stuff but I, I guess you could say that's how i got the start uh initially in model railroading i think uh as i got into my teens the decision based on space mainly uh was that ho made a lot more sense and uh, I began to accumulate some HO model rail running equipment. And um, eventually I started doing some kit bashing. And my first article was published when I was about 16 in uh, Railroad Modeler, a now defunct magazine. Okay. And it was on kit bashing also? It was, yeah. it was. A, I think I did a locomotive kit bash first. I took two Ather and Hustler shells and, and combined them into a center cab loco on an SW7 chassis. All and, right. Uh, the second article was a, uh, a transfer caboose, kind of a, a freelance sort of a thing. Okay. Um, and my weathering back then consisted of scraping chalk dust onto an index card and blowing it onto wet dull coat on a locomotive pilot. But it was a lot better than nothing. And this was when? What time frame? Oh, this is still... I would say uh, early 70s probably. Okay. And then when you get into high school and especially when you get your first car, I went into a bit of a, of a hiatus with it where I wasn't doing much with uh, model railroading. But then once I uh, settled down a little bit, got married, uh, moved into a house and had a kid and all of that, things kind of came full circle and I was right back doing it again. And I uh, started building my layout here in the, in the new house eventually wrote my next article in 1996 for Railroad Model Craftsman. So there was quite a bit of a hiatus between the initial pair of articles and the next one. Okay. the uh, I can identify with, I think, 
you know, it was maybe 72, 73 when I got in the hobby and there was a, uh, an article in railroad model craftsman on weathering cabooses. Mm-hmm. So I went to a shop and did exactly what you did. Uh, bought chalk, blew it on the car and got a rattle can of dull coat and I was off and running. I felt like I was on top of the world. Well, when, you, uh, when you consider the materials and, and the kind of models we had to work with back then, uh, we're in sort of a golden age by comparison right now, although there's a, a, there's a, a mixed bag with that as well. Everything has pros and cons. Yeah, that's true. I think life was simpler back then, too. It, it was. Okay. I had more, I had more kit-bashing options because there wasn't every locomotive model being manufactured. Yeah, and that, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, good grief. Who would have thought they'd bring out uh, Baldwin Centipede? Oh, exactly. There's so many unlikely models right now, so uh, there's almost not much incentive to uh, to really uh, work very hard making a particular model because manufacturers are doing the same things. They're always looking for interesting possibilities and subjects, and I think if you wait not that long. Most of your desires are going to be met in that department. Yes. And yet then there's, I heard a guy or read a post on a forum the other day who was lamenting the fact that no one made uh, the the ubiquitous uh, U36B. Well, you know what? That's an interesting question because although the article in Model Railroad Hobbyist this month is on a U18 mm-hmm. Uh, it's exactly the same techniques to make a U36B, particularly if you want a late phase one. Uh, for, for the railroad that I model, Conrail, they had purchased uh, some uh, U36Bs that were done to auto train specifications. Okay. And those are, late, those are late phase. So it's the exact same techniques that you would use to do that in terms of using parts of the C30-7 car body. Yes in order to make a, a correct late-phase U36B? I have done, uh, good grief, 30 years ago, I kit-bashed uh, an SDP-40F, which is, sure. that's a no-brainer. All you're doing is cutting out the, uh, the cooling fans in 1975 and reversing them to reflect a V16. And then I kit-bashed uh, an SDP-45 in Southern Pacific and, I just had a lot better eyes and a lot more patience way back then than I would now. It, it is an interesting question. I was fortunate that my close eyesight lasted until my very late 40s. Uh-huh. And, uh, and now, of course, I'm doing the old which pair of glasses <laughs> and where, where are they? Um, but I, I'm a little bit more forgiving now about fine detail when it comes to that. Uh, I think it's basically because I, I model what I see. And if I can't see it, it's less important. Oh, if I can't see it, I don't have to worry about modeling it. Okay, let me write that down. I think there's there's <laughs> some application for uh, household stuff that I can't. Honey, I can't see it. I didn't know I had to do it. Uh, St- standards for every age. <laughs> so you have an internet hobby store. How did you get into that? How'd that come about? Well, you know... Uh, in this area, there weren't a lot of hobby shops, and then we went through a period where there was this big shakeout, and there was really nothing close by to me. And when you start uh, building a layout, you're buying massive quantities of things, and I was mail ordering everything. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to be ordering everything, maybe I had to consider filling a, an unfilled niche here. And um, started out with some local distributors, eventually became a, a full-line Walters distributor. 
it's really just taken off from there. And, and I, I really don't know the exact year that I started, but it's, uh, it's definitely in double digits of, uh, of years, probably 12 to 14 years ago, maybe even a little more. Okay, now is that the website or the storefront? That is the website. Okay. Wow, you and are I, a- I primarily am marketing uh, o- over the web. Yeah. Uh, I've sold to customers literally all over the world. I've got a lot of international customers. I think that um, many, many uh, domestic businesses are not all that interested in the international market because shipping internationally uh, can be a little bit of a, of a nuisance. Okay. But um, I'm willing to do it, and consequently, I've, I've, uh, I've shipped to New Zealand, Africa, China, you name it. That's amazing. It really is. Which, it begs the question then, how does the, uh, the name of Micro's Hobby – Get out there. Well, I think the uh, clearly the articles uh, don't hurt. Okay. Uh, I'm also uh, a regular at many of the prototype modeling meets, and all of those get coverage on the internet and in magazines. Um, I have a, a Conrail modeling uh, group on Yahoo, and I'm a member of several other groups. So those groups tend to feature people from okay. all over the place, and, and you never know who you're going to make friends with. That's true. That's interesting. I look at you know, the website, and again for the listeners, it's uh, www.mrhobby.com. might want to click on that as uh, we continue talking uh, to Mike. You have got an incredible offering in detail parts, and I guess that goes back to your previous comment when you were you know, building your own railroad, doing your own work. So was your own kit bashing and everything an influence on some of the items that you chose to, uh, you know, stock? Uh, it definitely was. And, and I would also say it had a lot to do with the people that I met at the prototype modeling events. We're talking about Naperville, Cocoa Beach, uh, Western prototype modelers out, out in California, um, the uh, the New England meet. Uh, there's been some good middle of the country meets put on by people like Jim Six, and you know you start attending some of these meets, um, and you become good friends with all of these people. Okay, uh, I probably never would have found my way over to Savannah if it had not been for people like Bob Harp who run a very nice meet there. So um, if you have the 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 means and and the uh, ability in your schedule to travel all over the place, you can really make some some nice contacts. But the reason that the proto meets are so popular is because they're wonderful learning events and it's a great way and a great place where you can uh, talk to people about the models that they made because uh, usually people bring all kinds of models many of them in process models so you can learn in many ways even more from those and uh, most of these people the vast majority are very approachable and, and very willing to share ideas and concepts and techniques so the things that I carry on my website tend to be things that prototype modelers are interested in, like Canon and company parts and real flyer and some of my own detail parts as well. Okay. Well, let me, let me ask you, the, uh, the grab irons that are there, uh, those are rail flyers, You like right? those rail flyer grab irons? Oh, <laughs> those are beautiful. Uh, does that nut bolt washer uh, detail, is that a part of it? Yes. No kidding. Yeah, uh, Chris, the fellow that, that runs Rail Flyer, he's a very ambitious guy, very bright guy. I think he's a commercial pilot, in fact. 
and uh, and this is uh, at this at, you know up until now a uh, a bit of a sideline while he gets the company established, and he he fully intends to eventually end up at a scenario where you can build an entire locomotive with his parts. Uh, it's it's astonishingly ambitious. I have no idea the size of the market. Uh, I do know that the the parts that he makes are are very very good. Yes. Um, availability can sometimes be uh, be an issue because it is a, a small and and growing company. Unlike, for example, uh, Canon and Company, which has uh, been around a long time and has a very uh, very strong breadth of product line and. It's probably one of the most respected names in uh, in in locomotive detail parts uh, out there. Okay, well, and even you know he's got grabs. I mean, the unique ones like the dog leg grabs for the uh, slope on the cab. Sure. I mean, just stuff you don't necessarily see. Ah, it's impressive. Well, when you asked me originally about the grab irons, I thought you were referring to a little article I had on my website where I. I talk about how to create a jig to make drop grabs for the Atherin, uh, um I'm sorry, for the um, Branchline Berwick uh, boxcar. No, I read that and article that, on your that, website, but I was actually talking about rail flyers. Sure, sure. Uh, boy, all kinds of steps, tread plate, uh, oil retention tank. I mean, you've, you carry an incredible array of parts here, the two pipe industrial railing that I looked at the detail on that did a blow up. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is some nice. Uh, did you use that on like your grain silos and so forth? Yes, I did. Uh, that's, that's one of the most popular, uh, I shouldn't say popular, but it's, it's, it's one of those details that's needed on virtually any uh, 20th century and on uh, industrial facility. Okay. Nobody makes it in in brass. Uh, it's readily available in plastic, but I wanted something that I could uh, curve and have it hold a, a curve. And I, I just think the the brass etched parts are much more rugged. So I tried to get two different manufacturers interested in bringing that out, supplied them with measurements and details, and got nowhere with it. And eventually said, "The heck with it! I'm bringing this out myself." And it's uh, it's been very warmly received, actually. Okay, so you had it tooled, and it's one of your creations. Correct. I I actually uh, came up with the measurements, um, gave them to a good friend of mine, Brian Banna, who did all of the uh, AutoCAD drawings that the uh, etching people need. And uh, they're they're made in England, believe it or not. Okay. Wow, I had no idea. What else uh, have you come up? What else, you know, what are the other Mike uh, Rose parts on here? Well, the, the I carry a line of etched steps for GE locomotives that uh, Brian Banna also designed, and I basically took on that line from him. Uh, there's plenty of these things available for EMD locomotives, but what he was finding was that if he super detailed an EMD locomotive, his GEs didn't look as good next to them. And let's face it, the prototypes and, and the modelers uh, run them in, in combination. So it does make sense to have your GEs at a similar level of detail. So he designed several different GE model locomotive steps, and uh, and hopefully we'll have more in, in the future as time permits. Uh, it is a time-consuming thing to design and, and bring out new, new product lines, but got lots of ideas. Okay. 
And again, you can find those on uh, Mike's website. Um, you know, it's the catalog listing, and it says Micro's Hobbies, and there's double brass railing. Then we've got the etched brass steps for the uh, U28, the 30Bs, and other things there. Wow, that's amazing. You also carry Bragdon weathering powders. Yes. Give me a, and I just tell us about them and then give me a, a comparison between them and say one of the competitors like AIM. Well, I think, I think both of them have a lot of really good colors and I don't think there's uh, any secret to that these days. Um, I have not personally used the AIM powders. They, they, they do have a good reputation. I do know that the Bragdon powders have a, a pressure activated adhesive to them. So when I weather something with Bragdon powder, you take a soft brush and you kind of burnish it right into the model. And when you're done with that, you don't have to worry about handling the model. You don't have to dull coat over it and, and lose a lot of the effect. The adhesive effect that's, uh, that's built into the powder uh, makes it adhere to the model. And, uh, you know, it saves you a whole step and, and, and I think it, it stands up to handling. So that's what I like about them. Joel's got a lot of different combinations of the various color schemes depending upon what you're trying to achieve. So uh, it's just a nice versatile line to have and, and something that is often part of what I'm doing on my own. Okay, so you burnish it on and you pick it up. You don't have to worry about latent fingerprints. Won't come off in your fingers, right. Yeah, I wouldn't mind it getting on my fingers as much. I'd hate leaving a you know, skin oil fingerprint on that. You don't have to worry about that. Well, exactly, and that's really what we're trying to avoid. So um, it's almost like you've dull-coated the model, but as we all know, when you dull-coat over chalk uh, or other powders, it tends to uh, wipe out a lot of it. Didn't know that that was – no one had ever explained how that self-adhesive works. Okay. Mm -hmm. Man, that's a a saver. Uh, You've also got – talking about weathering items, you've got the Rustall products. Rustall was one of the first things that I, I ever used, and uh, and ironically, there's an anecdote about it that ties in with another weathering technique that I sort of accidentally developed, okay. so I'll explain that. Uh, when I started doing my early Conrail locomotive weathering, one characteristic of many Conrail locomotives is a heavily rusted cab roof and the top of the short hood and, and portions of the, uh, of the long hood and certainly the walkways. Okay. And Rustall seemed like a good way to to uh, replicate that, so I bought some and, and went to try it. And of course, I tried it on some locomotives that I had painted and decaled and dull coated. And when I applied it to the cab roof, the cab roof didn't get rusty; it got whitish. And I wasn't really sure why that was happening until not too long after that, when I was doing some scenery work on my layout. And um, I had, uh, without even thinking about it, a whole line of covered hoppers, oxide red covered hoppers that I had decaled and, and painted and lettered and dull coated that were sitting on a siding. But I was ballasting the main line uh, right in front of that. And one of the things that I do is soak down the ballast with uh, a 50-50 mix of water and, and uh, isopropyl just as a wedding yeah. agent. And uh, and I applied my ba- my ba- my ballast glue and and uh, came back a little bit later to sort of tweak it. And to my horror, I, I saw white spots uh, all over the covered hoppers. Wow! So the the alcohol spray that I had applied uh, kind of liberally, I guess, on the on the ballast 
uh, got onto the dull-coated covered hopper, uh, not covered hoppers, but open hoppers, and uh, and blushed it. So I thought, oh, God, don't tell me I have to <laughs> repaint and redo all of these. But just for the heck of it, I sprayed them again with Dulco, and the effect went completely away. So then I thought, well, boy, this could be a way of maybe fading in a controlled way. And if I didn't like the effect, I could reverse it by just dull coating over that and thus begin what I call dull coat alcohol fading. And I've used it on a, a number of uh, projects and articles that, I, that I've done. It's also part of my weathering clinic, and, and uh, it's great for not just uh, locomotives and freight cars, but also galvanized surface, surfaces, anything that's uh, aluminum and, and oxidized, so it's good for tanks and, and uh, bridges and ladders and walkways and you name it. Uh, so it's a very handy technique. You can apply it with a brush. You can apply it with a, with a spray if you want to do the whole, the whole object. But uh, the important thing is people in the weathering clinics can see how they can try it they don't like it, they can reverse it, and it's like it never happened. Okay. Yeah, I have never done the uh, alcohol fade over dull coat. I'd read about it. So the last thing I faded, I just made a uh, whitewash and airbrushed it on to get the level of fade I wanted. Uh, coincidentally, a, a uh, Conrail uh, SD60, I think it was. But, okay, so I need to step out of my comfort zone and dull coat one of these puppies up and hit it with alcohol and see what happens. Well, I, I, you know, my weathering DVD explains and actually shows how to do that in great detail. But I think, I think the most important thing to take from that and what people I like to take away from my clinics uh, should take away is that, uh, you know, you only have, the only enemy you have is, is fear itself. And (laughs) people are often, often afraid to quote, mess up a model uh, with weathering, and yet the model never looks right, certainly not prototypical, until you have some weathering on it. And people tend to get locked into one weathering methodology, and next thing you know, everything they have, it might be weathered, but it all looks the same. Right. And I've certainly been guilty of that. You mentioned the the fear and so forth about ruining a model. Do you ever frequent any of the... Uh, the weathering forums. You know, I've I've um, I've visited one or two. I'm I'm not even sure really offhand which uh, which forums I've visited. They tend to be filled with very good examples of of uh, of model weathering. I think there's a lot of really great weathering artists out there. I think when I first started doing it. That wasn't the case. I don't know if I had any influence on any of those folks, but um, that would be nice to think. But there's plenty of examples of, uh, of people who really are very, very good at this, and, and I think that's good because I think prototype modeling in general is gaining more of a, of a foothold and, and is certainly getting a lot of attention. Okay, and I, I agree with you. Some of the work on... Uh, one of the uh, sponsors of uh, MRH is, uh, what is it, Model Trains Weathered, I think, Rich Divizio's. And there are just some incredible people on uh, on that. I think Proto Weathering's another one that's got, uh, there's a Phoenix uh, gentleman here has a hobby shop who's on there. And his work is just, you know, just jaw-dropping. 
you got to go. Am well, I looking? It's definitely in vogue, but I, and I think that's a good thing. Yes. So you just have to if you go there and you post post your work up there on any of the photos. You know, you got to have thick skin because it will get critiqued. But mm-hmm. you know, it's a learning experience, so you just take your take it as a, a positive thing and go on with it. Uh, do you ever do any professional wedding for other people? You take on projects. I, I have been asked numerous times, uh, particularly when you do articles, uh, you always invariably get contacted by one or more persons that would like you to do a, a project for them. Um, so far, I have not done that. I, I have I have many friends who uh, who do that and are are very good at it. Um, I'm a I'm a process guy, you know. I do I do the hobby for enjoyment, mm-hmm. and um, I don't necessarily want to turn the art portion of it into a business at this time because it might take the fun out of it for me. And by the time I finish with a lot of these models, they're like they're like children. I just can't. Part <laughs> with okay, I I hear that. Now, you and I had uh, talked just a little bit before we started the recording because I was. Curious, I've, I've ordered Mike's DVD, but it hadn't shown up yet, so I haven't been able to preview it. That's because I haven't shipped it oh, yet. Oh, <laughs> okay, mystery solved. Uh, Going out tomorrow. <laughs> checks in the mail. Mentioned in one of the emails, I've, you know, to me it's a process. I do it this, 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 this. Tell me, what, what's your process? How do you approach, you're going to weather a car. Just tell me how you approach that. When, when I first started weathering, uh, I, I ran into that same syndrome of a car looks okay, but put them all together with a bunch of cars that I'd weathered and they all had, had a, a family resemblance. And that's not prototype modeling because cars come from all different areas of the continent. They're exposed to all different weathering processes and, and effects. And if you look at a train that goes by, uh, unless it's maybe a unit coal train or something like that, and even then, you see some individual differences. But uh, if you look at a general freight, it's uh, it's it's got a lot of variety to it. So I was I was trying. It, it was the effort to try to get variety in my weathering that got me into prototype modeling. And what I found was that if I was out rail fanning and I took a picture of a particular car that I really liked and wanted to replicate, and then I followed all of all of the various problem-solving methods to get it to look as much as possible like that car. And then I took another prototype photo of a different car somewhere else, and I tried weathering that car. Eventually, I got the automatic variation that I was looking for by faithfully trying to model individual prototype cars. So when I'm, when I'm looking at one new project, first thing I do is study the photo. And I'm trying to just soak in all of the different weathering effects. What stands out to me? What looks model-worthy? What might I not model? For example, I'm not a graffiti fan, so usually I'm not modeling graffiti, although I've seen some very good graffiti modeling. I just prefer it not in my model world, okay. personal choice. So I'm deciding what on that prototype uh, appeals to me and, and that I want to model. And then I just kind of run through the overall bag of tricks trying to determine what would be the best for each particular effect. And it can be a combination of fading or chalking, um, different types of rust, whether it's uh, spotting or streaking or bleeding rust, um, 
general grime and dirt. Uh, one of the things I always do, if you look at the rolling stock on my layout, almost 100% of the cars have painted truck side frames, wheels, and, and couplers. It's kind of a pet peeve. Of sure. Couplers, couplers are never shiny, and the sides of prototype wheels are never silver. <laughs> That's one of my pet okay. peeves. So I try to make sure that all of the uh, – that's like a minimal level of uh, of, of uh, detailing that every single car gets. There may be a couple of escapees out there, but when I see them, I grab them and, and put them aside for, uh, for treatment. Uh, not every car gets um, – gets the treatment that is seen in some of my magazine articles. In fact, probably less than 10% of my fleet has the more extreme weathering that I may or may not be known for. But those are the ones that stand out to me in a prototype train, and, and that's what stands out in a model train, and the others just sort of have a base grime weathering to them, unless it's a particular specific prototype car I'm modeling. Okay. What are the uh, the mediums you mentioned so you're doing... You might employ pigment, chalk, oil, alcohol for a fade. Um, got any other things in your bag of tricks? Different paints. Uh, there's also a, uh, a um, iron-bearing paint that I've been uh, experimenting with that you, you paint on, let it dry, hit it with a, um, uh, an agent that, uh, that corrodes it, and for those situations where you might want to have some more three-dimensional looking uh, rust or something really exceptionally rusty, this stuff is great. So that's something you can get in a, in a craft store like Michael's. Okay. What, and what's it called? You would ask me that. I can't think of the name of it offhand, but it's the only two-part um, rusting solution that you'll probably find there. I think they also have uh, a companion product that is to replicate uh, the copper patina. Oh, Okay. One of the things I've learned is that if you sometimes roam around in some of these large craft stores, you can find all kinds of things that are useful when you're building a model railroad. And, all right, so yeah, give me the DVD so I can look at that. I'll probably, I would probably have a lot more questions after I've looked at the DVD. Well, if, you've, if you watch the DVD and you have a lot of questions, I want to know about that because that means I'm not getting my point across. Oh, okay. <laughs> May have to do a part two of the interview or review of the DVD. Well, that would, I'm willing to do that. <laughs> okay. Now, of course, you've got the, uh, the cover article in the uh, the issue, the brand new issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist Magazine on kit bashing the uh, U18B, you'd mentioned to me earlier earlier that you, you recalled the first kit bash you did was creating kind of a uh, a freelanced center cab unit out of two Aether and Hustlers. Uh, yes, I still have it. <laughs> oh, and I presume it's powered. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. Sort of. <laughs> Is there a picture of it on your website? No, no, no. I don't. I don't think it's quite prototype modeling worthy, but I keep it for sentimental reasons. Oh, okay. Well, for the for the listeners, we're going to talk about some of the other things Mike has done in his personal website, where you can go look at his his layout and his photos that we're going to be discussing. Is www.pbase dot com forward slash Mike Rose forward slash Mike's underscore layout underscore picks. And you're going to see some incredible scenery when you look at that. And what I want to talk about, because 
I just, I've built a grain train. And uh, so I've got Boku cars stretched out behind a, several SD40s. And you've got this, you refer to it as Grainzilla. Yes. It's, a, it's, actually, uh, it's actually terminology that I stole from uh, my friend Jim Six uh, because he had built a large uh, grain elevator that he was calling Grainzilla um, with the idea that it just uh, he was creating a, a monster there and it had, uh, it had taken on a, a life of its own. But um, once I started building mine and it was that much larger than, than his, he, he willingly uh, yielded the title to, uh, to my effort there. Okay, because it actually, the, the series of photos actually starts on, I believe it's page 47, when it, you know, the, the title, Mike's HO Layout uh, Under Construction, and there's a list of all the photo pages. So if you click on page 47... Uh, and let me mention, too, if you're on Mike's uh, Hobby Store uh, website, scroll down the page and you'll see also a link that takes you to uh, this page. That is correct. That's the easiest way to yes. do it. Go to mrhobby.com and then just click on the, on the link to, to PBase. There's other albums there, too, of, uh, of my various exploits, real fanning and, and, uh, and traveling and, and what have you. Uh, PBase is an easy and efficient way to share photos with people, and I started doing it so I didn't have to email lots of large photos out to a bunch of people. Yes. Oh, but, I mean, even the first two photos – uh, Grainzilla takes shape. I mean, this thing is huge. How, what is the footprint of this grain complex? I think it's 51 inches long. I know I had to add on to the foam base uh, <laughs> that, that I built when I displayed it last fall at the Craftsman Structure Show. Uh, and in fact, uh, at this year's Craftsman Structure Show, uh, I'm not only going to be giving the clinic that details the completion of Grainzilla, I'm also going to be giving some uh, premium clinics on on weathering there. Okay. So it's probably something that people may want to uh, check out as well. It's uh, www.craftsmanstructureshow.com. And that's going to be held uh, where and when? Uh, that's going to be held in Mansfield, Massachusetts uh, in November. Okay. If you go, uh, if the listeners want to, Click to page 52, you get uh, the second row of pictures, the whole thing, as, as uh, Mike has put it there. And if you click on the, the photos, obviously, uh, they come up. How many silos are there? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> well, in the one it's, picture it's, I'm counting, a, one, two, three, four, looks like 22, and then there's a second set of silos. This thing is huge. Well, for, for anybody um, that's going to be uh, either in, in Mansfield in November or in, um, in the greater Chicago area in October, mm-hmm. I'm going to be giving the last two clinics on, uh, on the creation of it. And uh, it's also scheduled to be an article in Railroad Model Craftsman sometime in, in 2011. So All right. uh, they're just, I think, trying to figure out how they're going to digest it because, as you might guess, it's a pretty big article. But the uh, the short story is that I started out with uh, a Walther's grain elevator kit and uh, built the added-on silos and stole silos from the Medusa cement. And uh, the idea was to come up with a large signature structure at my port area that would act as sort of a view block 
between the scenic portion of the layout and the unscenic staging area that runs behind the water filters that I have there okay. for, my, for my well. And um, what I, when I got it all put together, I looked at it, and it just didn't look right to me. And the reason was that although the, the Walters facility is perfectly acceptable for a more regional kind of a facility, for these uh, terminal elevators like you see in Kansas City and, and Toledo, Ohio and Buffalo, New York, Albany, New York is, is, is really the main inspiration for the prototype of mine. Okay. Uh, they're much taller. And uh, I, I did some prototype research and, and learned that uh, I needed to extend these silos several inches. And that's when I devised the whole methodology for uh, building the silos and flattening the sides so I could glue them together properly out of PVC two-inch pipe. Okay. So it was quite a project. <laughs> okay. So you've got all this PVC two-inch pipe cut to how right. tall are they? Uh, 14 inches tall. All right. And so what would you do going with a bandsaw or some kind of uh, belt sander? Thing? Actually, I had to, had to devise a, a jig uh, so that I could cut these accurately but safely on my table saw. Wow. Okay. And that's all in the P-Base album. It actually shows all of the different pictures, even the jig. Okay. I got... Uh, so if you have patience, you can see the whole process. Okay. There. The, uh, I see you've got a lot. Uh, there's your railing on image 8147. Safety tread walkway. You have detailed this thing out to the hilt. Well, it, it kind of took on a life of its own. But when you are scratch building a structure... Yes. You don't have the luxury of just reaching in the in the box of kit parts that it came with, and you're forced to figure out how you're going to construct all of these things out of raw materials. When you're doing that, uh, you might as well do it in a in a detailed fashion that stands up to close-up photography, particularly if it's going to be an article. Okay. Now I'm looking at because uh, I've scanned around and I can see some. This looks like a, a conveyor and. Looks like you've kit bashed a uh, a belt guard. Yes. Are any of these commercially available parts, like some of Walser's trims kits, that you've just kit bashed to uh, fit what you needed? Well, Walser's actually came out with some of their own line of etched metal parts to augment or replace what's in those kits, okay. and uh, they lend themselves because they're metal to cutting up, soldering together, making different lengths, and, and what have you. So it ranges from just simple kit bashing like that all the way to scratch building things like the auger motor that, that drives the cross-bin conveyor. Okay. I mean, I'm just looking at these and just they're jaw-dropping. They are incredible. <laughs> Thank you. They are incredible. I appreciate the, the scale of them. Well, it was a lot of fun to do. It, it did take on a life of its own, like so many projects. You get to a certain point and you realize, well, I've come this far. I'm not going to start scrimping now. Oh, I agree. Uh, looking on, I see other support buildings and that you've done and added to this. Just a lot of kit bashing went into this. I guess I've been kit bashing since a teenager and I never stopped. Yeah, if you, well, if you're on a roll, why not? How big is your layout? Uh, it's a full it's a full basement at this point, uh, about a 35 foot square basement, and um, it is a single level, but it does have some uh, underneath hidden trackage that extends the run. So it's about a 14 
or so minute run around the entire basement, although I run it point to point. Okay. Uh, do you have a regular group that comes over and you guys have op sessions? Uh, actually, regular would not be the word. I, I, uh, I'm lucky to do it annually, but uh, <laughs> my goal is to do it uh, more often. Okay. The thing is, uh, the last op session last year revealed a number of things that I wanted to address, and I'm in the final stages of addressing that uh, now, and I'm getting together with a few friends later this month to test all that out and see how I did. Okay. I'm see a couple of uh, I see a couple of really nicely done GP15s in Conrail. I'm, I've got a lot of GP15s. I I have an old Smoky Valley uh, un, unpowered version that I built at least 20 years ago. Uh, you can maybe see that around the engine terminal. I have a pair of Overland Brass GP15s that I had them custom paint, but to uh, two po- prototype photos that I supplied to them, and uh, I just got in today two of Athern's uh, Genesis Jeep-15s. Okay. Well, these are sitting there, number 1602 and 1645. They are pristine. They Those are the brass. Are they? Okay. They have not seen a hint of dust. I'm sure that'll change, right? Uh, that's true. I, I, uh, they have not... Uh, bubbled up to the uh, priority list uh they they weren't they weren't as uh, bothersome to me as some of the uh shiny out of the box plastic units okay and i see some of your weathered uh rolling stock there and going back to what you said there's within these photos there's a diversity of the uh, the amount of grime on a car uh right that that's what i'm looking for yeah the the piece or pittsburgh and lake erie uh, box, as you can see, that you've made the paint Actually nicely did faded. That one in in a weathering clinic. Did you? Because you've even rusted yes. beneath the ADT uh, sticker that was so popular in the sixties and seventies. With the ski- no doubt, I had a prototype photo that I was going by, but I was basically using that box. I uh, took it brand new out of the box uh, at a clinic and, and just kind of started from scratch with it. Oh, yeah. Then you've got a uh, a patched uh, CNA followed by a, uh, looks like a Burlington Northern uh, outside rib. So what would that be, like a paper car, paper products car maybe? Yes, yes. And the CNA car is probably, uh, is that a double door Yes, car? it is. That's a that's a double door PS fifty three forty four that was part of a series on those that I did uh, for a railroad model craftsman some years back. I did I don't know if it was four or five different variants on that car. Okay, that uh, wow, well done, well done. Thank you, thank you. Now a lot of those articles are at this point out of print, uh, but I'm going to be reissuing them probably in PDF format on disc. Uh, hopefully by the end of this year, but if not, towards the beginning of next. Okay. Now here's uh, – I've scrolled over to another picture of showing some uh, track work. Uh, looks like we've got a uh, SD50 followed by maybe a, a Norfolk Southern SD70 pulling some open uh, – some coal cars, coke cars, whatever. Okay. Very nicely weathered and done. The the roadbed. I've been around Conrail when they were maybe ten years into their lifespan, and sure. I was always impressed at, you know, their stuff got dirty, but it never got really grungy. And the the physical plant always seemed to like somebody cared about it. 
It's funny you should say that. They, they, uh, they, once they got their, their act together, and that really wasn't all that easy in the early days because they had a, a long way to go, but uh, eventually they figured out how to run a railroad and did a really good job at it. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, when CSX took over here in New England and looked at the Boston line and pronounced it over-maintained, and we all thought, uh-oh, <laughs> sure enough, uh, it's gone downhill considerably since then. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that's a shame. I noticed that uh, the stuff I used to see when I'd go to Berea and watch trains was a lot dirtier than it had been in Conrail days. Exactly. Well, during the pause, Mike and I actually decided we're going to make this a two-parter. He's going to get me his DVD. I'm going to look at it because I know a lot of our listeners are going to have questions about, you know, just how do you uh, weather? And we can address specifics, uh, topics on there. So we've had a good night tonight. Mike, I appreciate your time for you being able to uh, join us, and we're going to hook up with the the second part of your kit bashing article, and we'll delve maybe a little deeper into the uh, weathering aspect. That's great. I look forward to All it. All right. Again, thanks for your time, and thanks to our listeners. This is Paul Gillette. It's been a great evening. All right. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Mike.